Okay, turn with me to Matthew 7, and we are looking at verses 15 to 20. We began this last week, but did not finish it, and uh, probably won't finish it today, but we will begin looking at it. Let's read the passage again. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. After giving the invitation to enter uh, by the narrow gate to come to God by the only way he has provided, Jesus now warns that not everyone who claims to, believe, to, to belong to God and to speak for him actually does so. Uh, when we stand at the crossroads of decision, we should remember that the true way to God is narrow and the false way is broad and wide. The true way is difficult and demanding, and the false way is easy and permissive. Uh, the true way has relatively few people traveling on it, and the false way has multitudes. So the only permissible response to the Sermon on the Mount is to make a decision, uh, to either go through the narrow gate onto the narrow way that leads to life, or to go through the wide gate onto the wide way that leads to destruction. Those are the only two alternatives that there are. And as we talked last week, you realize that it's not an easy thing to get into that narrow gate. Uh, Jesus says there are few who find it. And one reason that it's difficult, among several reasons, is that because standing in front of those two gates, as, as you stand at that crossroads, are false prophets uh, doing everything they can in their power to get you to go the wrong way, to take the broad road. And so Jesus says, having given you this invitation, I'm going to have to warn you too. And that's where we find ourselves here in this passage. He must warn us of false prophets. And so he starts off by saying, beware of the false prophets. Uh, they stand at the midst of the crossroads trying their best to obscure the narrow way and to push men toward the Broadway, and they're highly successful. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying, I told you last week, I've outlined this very simply with two points, his warning and our watching. And we saw the warning there in verse 15. He says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, there's always a market for false prophets because the truth is that people don't want to hear the truth. Uh, in Matthew 24, 11, he says that during the last days, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Uh, there are many false prophets who deceive many people. Many go take the road and many will wind up in the final judgment saying, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And uh, he's going to say, I don't know any of you. Uh, depart from my presence. And so the false prophets come to the same end of those whom they have misled. Uh, Paul warned in Romans 16, 17, and 18 to keep your eye on those who cause 
dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Paul told Timothy that they teach the doctrines of demons. Uh, Peter said that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And so the Bible warns us over and over and over and over again about false prophets. Uh, but as we said, there's always going to be a large market for them because people want to hear what makes them feel good rather than hearing the truth. Uh, people prefer to hear what's pleasant, even if it is false and dangerous, over what is unpleasant and unflattering, even if it's true and helpful. Uh, I told you uh, we're breaking this first point of uh, his warning down into four parts to understand it. And we saw last week the definition of a false prophet, and we'll review that a little bit, and the danger of false prophets, and then the deception of false prophets, and the damnation of false prophets. Uh, the definition of a false prophet. What is a false prophet? Uh, well, you find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that a true prophet was known by two things. He had a divine commission, and he had a divine message. He was called by God, and he was given his content by God. Uh, he gave God's message, and he was God's man. A, a true prophet was God's voice to men. But no sooner did God send his true prophets to speak the true messages and to draw the wayward sheep back to God, but Satan began to counterfeit. And as you study the Old Testament, you find over and over again that there were these false prophets misleading the people. And the most dangerous characteristic of them is that they claim to be from God. They claim to speak on his behalf. In Jeremiah 5.31, God told Jeremiah, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. Uh, people love listening to them because they tell them what they want to hear. It's no different than what Paul told Timothy about people in the last days who will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with, to their own desires. Uh, and during Jesus' time, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who paraded around as if they were godly, but and as if they were righteous, but the reality was they were ravenous wolves. And they were self-seeking, self-serving, and they used the people to gain their own ends. In John 8, Jesus says directly to them, to their face, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the... Uh, way of truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He who is of God hears the words of God's. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Not exactly Dale Carnegie material there uh, on how to win friends and influence people. So there they were with all of their supposed religiosity, making sure they filled out every minute aspect of the law, acting like they were the most religious of all people. And yet Jesus says, you're false prophets. That's exactly what they were doing. They're very religious, but they were damning men to perdition. And so the false prophets were there during the Old Testament times, the New Testament times, the present time, and they will be in the future also. Last week I mentioned the, the word pseudo-Christos, 
false Christ. Uh, and that Greek prefix pseudo transliterates directly into our English language. It's our word pseudo. Uh, as you know, it means false, phony, not genuine. And that's the prefix which is a part of the various words that the New Testament writers used to refer to these guys. They're called by many different names. In 2 Corinthians 11.26, they're pseudo-brothers. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.13, they're pseudo-apostles. Uh, 2 Peter 2.1, pseudo-prophets. Uh, 2 Peter 2.1 again, pseudo-teachers. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.2, pseudo-speakers. And Matthew 24, 24, pseudo-Christs. Uh, so it's a, it's a favorite term. It's a favorite prefix of the Bible writers to use that. Uh, Paul warned the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. In Colossians 2, 8, he said, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So false prophets, false teachers were characterized by human philosophy and the empty deceiving words of worldly wisdom. Now, next we come to the danger of false prophets. What is the danger? Well, what's the first word of verse 15? Beware. Beware. Uh, that word always is a warning of danger, isn't it? Uh, it's not a warning simply to notice or sense something, but to actually be on guard against it because it's so harmful. It means to be on the alert, to pay close attention to, uh, to, to watch for something that's dangerous. In fact, the word is a present active imperative. Be continuously on the alert, constantly on watch. Uh, whenever I see a sign that says, beware of something, I immediately start paying attention to be on the lookout for whatever that sign's warning me about. I mean, here in Florida, if it says, beware of alligators, I start looking for an alligator. Uh, if it says, beware of the dog, I start looking to see where the dog is and what kind it is. Uh, when I'm driving in the mountains and I see a sign that says, beware of falling rocks, believe me, I start looking at the sides of those cliffs to see if I'm see any loose rocks that might be about to fall. Uh, so Jesus' instruction here is that we are to be actively, constantly on the lookout for false prophets. Uh, they are extremely dangerous people. They pervert the mind and the, they poison the soul. They're more dangerous than a cobra or a grizzly bear. Because those animals can only harm or kill the body. These men destroy the eternal soul of those who follow them. Peter said, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Uh, but despite their danger, Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. Uh, you see, many people are suckered into following them down the broad road, thinking they're religious, following them like the Pied Piper all the way to destruction. And Peter calls them by all kinds of descriptive terms to just show how dangerous they are. Second uh, Peter, he calls them unreasoning animals, stains and blemishes who entice unstable souls, uh, springs without water. Jude calls them unreasoning animals, hidden reefs, clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars. 
Folks, you'd better you'd be better off to drink a bottle of poison than to be influenced by a false prophet. Uh, now, why are they so dangerous? Well, the end, look at the end of verse 15. Because inwardly, that's the reality, truthfully, on the inside, they are ravenous wolves. Turn back with me to Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22. And I want to show you how God describes Israel's priests and prophets during that time. Remember, when Jesus was teaching, he was drawing upon and using language from the Old Testament that would have been familiar to his Jewish readers and um, Jewish listeners of that day. So when he called the false prophets ravenous wolves, those Jews who heard him should have thought, hey, that's what Ezekiel called them too. Uh, but Ezekiel said a lot more than that. I want you to see what he wrote. Ezekiel 22, starting at verse 23. Okay? It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes within her, here it is, are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them. Remember when Jesus called them whitewashed tombs? Uh, even then there was a connection back to the Old Testament when he said that. Uh, uh, they, her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus, speaks, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. And in this very sad statement, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so I would not destroy it, but I found no one. And because there was no man of truth and integrity to represent God, verse 31, thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Let me talk about this for a minute. The most common natural enemy of the sheep in Israel in biblical times was the wolf. Uh, they are a merciless and ferocious predator. Uh, they roam the hills and valleys looking for a sheep that had strayed a little too far away from the rest of the flock or was lagging behind. And at the right moment, the wolf would run out of hiding and snatch that sheep and rip it to shreds. Even a healthy adult sheep is totally defenseless against a wolf. Now, according to Jesus' teaching in John 10, a good shepherd 
always stays on the alert for the wolf. Uh, a good shepherd cares for a sheep, so he watches, he's awake, he's alert. He'll give his life for his sheep. He'll do anything he has, he, he has to do to keep them from the wolf. But on the other hand, Jesus says there's the hired hand, uh, who is not the owner of the sheep. Who he says when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. You see, the guy who's only a hired hand says, this is only a job to me. Uh, it's not worth my life. I'm getting out of here. And as soon as the going gets tough, he runs. Uh, this is the guy who, who gets into the ministry simply as a way to pay his bills. He doesn't want any of the heat. He just likes the prestige of being the pastor. Uh, he collects his paycheck. But as bad as hired laborers are, there's something worse than them, and that's the wolves themselves. Uh, hired laborers just run. Wolves eat the sheep. Uh, the wolves are the worst enemies. The good shepherd protects the flock. The hired laborer abandons the flock. But the false prophet is a wolf who tears and shreds and destroys the flock. Why are they the worst? Because Jesus says they're ravenous. Uh, that word means just what it says. Uh, the Greek word means to snatch and to seize with the implication of doing so in order to destroy the prey. Uh, but it was also used of a swindler in Luke 18.11 and 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 11. A swindler is someone who by deception grabs and snatches the money and resources of the unsuspecting. They are merciless and they destroy lives. And that is the word that is also translated ravenous here. That's what Jesus is saying about false prophets. They are so dangerous that we are to be wily and wary uh, if we ever come near them. Uh, for one thing, even if they don't influence us, if we get involved with them in some way, others might think we're condoning them. And someone with less discernment than us might then get torn apart by them. So they're very dangerous. Let me show you why I say that. In the wonderful little book on apostates and apostasy, Jude, at the end of the book, there's a section that really illustrates the point. Jude 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So he says to believers, get yourself in the circle where God blesses, where God's love is manifest. Be blessed. Get your life straight. Then once you've gotten yourself taken care of, reach out. And verses 22 and 23 talk about winning people to Christ. And he gives us three categories of the people we're supposed to reach. Number one, have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, when you find someone who's doubting, you go to them. You put your arms around them, you love them, you be merciful to them. They might say, I think I believe, I, I, I think it's really true, but I'm not certain. I just want to be sure. Jude says, be merciful to them. There's a second group that you might call endangered disbelievers. Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Uh, these are the ones who don't believe. They're on their way to hell. 
and you just have to grab them out. Uh, these are just the ordinary unbelievers, people who are indifferent and outside the fold of God. But then there's a third category. I call these those who are confirmed in a false religion. And when you go to those people, it says in verse 23, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. When you try to win one of these folks to Christ and you find that they are engulfed under the influence of a false prophet, you'd better go with some fear because you don't want that false prophet or false religion to influence you. And the idea of hating the garment polluted by the flesh pictures despising the defiled character of the apostate who might potentially influence you as a well-meaning evangelist. You see, what Jude is saying is, this is so serious that when you attempt to rescue someone under their influence, you can also be defiled by their influence. They are vile, dangerous, ravenous wolves, these false prophets. That's very important stuff, folks. It's like leprosy. You don't want to be anywhere near it because it's a terrible contagion. Uh, and even when you try to rescue someone from under their influence, you might find yourself close to being polluted with the evil, vile flesh. Let me just say this. Don't think that false prophets are good and well-meaning but simply misguided people. They are dangerous, devouring wolves who endeavor to shove people onto the broad road to hell. Sometimes they know what they're doing. Sometimes they're duped just like the people who follow them. Don't be like the man who used to attend Lakeside, who had come to our church after attending another church that proclaimed the gospel, but really didn't do a lot to teach people the meat of the word, and certainly would never warn about false teachers or false doctrine with any specificity. And a few months after arriving here, he took a business trip to Houston, Texas. And while there, he attended Joel Osteen's church one Sunday, and he became so enamored with Osteen's engaging, warm, encouraging personality that he failed to recognize that Osteen's gospel is a false gospel of man's inner goodness and personal success, of achieving health and wealth if you just think positively. And he came back and told several friends what a great teacher Osteen is. And when a couple of elders went to him and tried to explain that Osteen is a false teacher who's misleading millions of people, he didn't receive their instruction. And he tried to explain that the elders here at Lakeside merely misunderstood Osteen and that we were too severe in our criticism of his ministry. And eventually the man left the church. He's a perfect example of someone who didn't have much discernment, who was influenced by a false prophet when he got too close. I believe the man's truly a believer, but because he is not was not yet grounded in the word, he was more easily influenced by his emotional feelings than by biblical truth. Well, that brings us to the third word, and this is the key. We've seen the definition of a false prophet, the danger of false prophets. Now we come to the deception of false prophets. What does Jesus say they look like? I mean, inwardly they are ravenous wolves, but he says they come to you 
in sheep's clothing. Now in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, <clears throat> a prophet was known by what he wore. Uh, for example, Elijah wore a very rough, hairy, rugged, burlap-type garment, and that was a statement, a statement to society that he was foregoing creature comforts for the cause of God in calling his people to obedience. John the Baptist came as one in the wilderness, and he had a camel's hair coat, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Or, yeah, that's it, locusts and wild honey. I was going to say wild locusts and honey, but it's, no, it's the other way. Uh, and so, again, he wore the garment of a prophet. Uh, the rough, raw hair of a camel is nothing like what one might wear today. Uh, it's very rough, very uncomfortable, but it designated the prophet. And when the prophet came, he came with no worldly goods and no worldly wardrobe. Uh, he came in rough, rugged fashion as if he had come out of the wilderness where he had been communing with God. Therefore, when anyone wanted to play the part of a prophet, he went out and got a rough, rugged, burlap garment and played the role. Uh, in fact, in Zechariah 13, God says that there's coming a day when Christ will return and cleanse the nation of Israel of the false prophets. And so to avoid being caught and executed, the false prophets will adopt a clandestine approach. And so it says in Zechariah 13.4, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. Uh, in other words, they won't wear the rough garment that they've been wearing, which they wore in order to deceive. That was their whole approach. Uh, so then what does Jesus mean about them when he says they come in sheep's clothing? Well, you see, for the most part, shepherds wore robes and cloaks. Naturally, what would you expect them to be made out of? Wool, right? Sheep's wool. That was the, one of the marks of a shepherd. The idea is not that the false prophet deceives the flock by impersonating sheep. That is not the idea. But he deceives by impersonating the shepherd. Uh, he comes dressed like a shepherd. Sheep's clothing is a term for wool. And so just as the false prophet wore the garment of a prophet, the false shepherd wears the garment of a shepherd. And so even though he looks to be a shepherd for the flock of God, he's actually a wolf. He has disguised himself as a shepherd, but his whole purpose is to ravish the flock. The Bible speaks of three kinds of of false prophets, heretics, apostates, and deceivers. The heretic is the guy who comes along and says, that's not true. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible means. And then he teaches heresy. He twists the scripture to fit his heresy and teaches openly heretical doctrine. Second, the apostate is the guy who once seemed to follow the true faith, but apostatized from it and now denies the faith, rejects it, and is now trying to lead others away. 
Heretics and apostates aren't tough to spot because they don't claim to represent Orthodox biblical Christianity. It's rather e actually rather easy to spot their false doctrine because all you have to do is open up your Bible and compare it to what it teaches with what they're saying. And may I remind you that both of those are the people that Jesus dealt with in back in verse 6. They are the dogs and the hogs. Okay? It says, do not give what is holy to the dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. It's easy to spot the hogs and the dogs. Uh, they're in the vomit and the mire. Okay? But it's this third kind of false prophet, the deceiver. That's who Jesus is referring to here. This is the one you don't see. This is the one who comes with the cloak of the shepherd. This is not the cultist. This is not the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness who openly and flagrantly teach false doctrine. Those are apostates and heretics. Now, this is the one who talks about Jesus and he talks about the cross, and he talks about God, and he talks about the Bible, and he talks about the church and the Holy Spirit, and he hangs around with people who are true Christians, and he mingles within the framework of evangelicalism. And he may be on the radio or television, and he's in the pulpit, and he writes books, and he always looks like a Christian. That's the one Jesus is referring to here. These guys are subtle. The Lord is not warning us here against heretics, or he's not warning us here against apostates. He's warning us against people who sound like they teach the gospel, who sound like Christians, who use the speech of the Bible, the speech of the gospel, but it's only a guise. Sometimes they will even use orthodox terminology. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this, because in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 to 15 it says for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds so we're not talking about those other two kinds the heretics and the apostates we're talking about the subtle deceiver who comes into our midst Jude 4 says they have crept in unnoticed. Now, they're all over the place, folks. I don't know how you're doing on recognizing them, but they're everywhere. And I'll tell you, if you recognize them, if you try to warn other believers about them, get ready for some of them to be very upset with you. Uh, they say, him? No, that's not true. He's a man of God. Or... Her? No, she's one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. But all of the criteria needs to be examined. Bible scholar D.A. Carson describes them this way. Quote, There's nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit, nothing which searches the conscience and makes men cry to God for mercy, Nothing which excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy. Nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable. It's even possible in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult bits, they do not tell the whole truth and their total message is false. End quote. Verse 
Let me tell you what they look like. First of all, they're pleasant. They're nice. They smile a lot. They seem positive. They seem affirming. They hang around with Christians. They appear to be thoroughly Christian. They talk Christian talk. They, they seem to say the right things. And you know what I've learned? It isn't what they say. It's what they never say. They talk about Jesus, the cross, heaven, dealing with life struggles. They never talk about sin or hell or meekness or humility and brokenness before God. They talk about how to be happy, how to be healed, how to be this, how to be that. They're pleasant, they're nice, and they say nice things, and their lives even appear to be clean. And you say, well, if they're really false prophets, their lives shouldn't really be clean. Uh, well... Number one, it's possible that their public image is just a fraud. And that underneath and behind the scenes, if you knew them, you'd know they were rotten. On the other hand, some of them do live superficially clean lives. Uh, and you know why? Because many of them came from traditional religious training. And because they were ingrained in their early life with traditional Christian moral values, they find it difficult to just dump that early training and become grossly debauched. Whether they're just pushing down their depravity for the sake of their reputation or whether behind the scenes they're just as rotten as we would assume, nonetheless, most people think they're fine Christians. And even when they sin a great sin, uh, and even when something happens publicly and it becomes apparent that they are very sinful, the people in their church just say, oh, well, everyone's a sinner and uh, we're all called to forgive them and nothing ever happens. Nothing ever said about being disqualified for ministry. Instead, they just take time away for a short while to reflect about what they did. And they receive counseling uh, for overcoming their sin. And within a short time, they're right back in the saddle, back in the pulpit sooner than you can believe. But they're false prophets. They are false deceivers, and therein lies the deception. In 100 AD, we have the earliest of the Christian writings other than Scripture that we know about. It's called the Didache. And at that early time, the church was beginning to try to prevent false prophets from weaseling their way into the church. And so in the Didache, there's a section on a, of instruction on how to deal with false prophets. It uses a term to describe them, and a term I think is interesting. It's this Greek word, Christemporos. Christemporos. It means... Christ merchants or Christ sellers. Uh, the idea is that they trade in Christ. Uh, they sell Christ for personal gain. They pad their pockets. They build their empires. They're the happy Holy Spirit healers. Um, and they're the positive thinkers. They're the people who just wind up on the gravy train end of it, uh, sucking it all up. They are the Christ merchants. But the early church was so worried about this that they put a few rules in the Didache to help people know how to identify them. Now, these rules are not inspired by God. These are written by some folks at that time who wanted to have some criteria to judge a false prophet. So they said, quote, 
A true prophet is to be held in the highest honor. He is to be welcomed, and his word must never be disregarded, and his freedom must never be curtailed. But he shall remain in your house one day, and if necessary, another day also. But if he remains three days, he's a false prophet. End quote. Now, they're not denying hospitality, but when a man came along and said he was a prophet of God, they assumed that if he was a true prophet, he was on a mission. And he, if he was really on a mission of God, he would get busy about getting on to his mission, not hanging around, taking in all the freebies that he could get. Uh, it also said that, quote, he must never ask for anything but bread. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet, end quote. Uh, boy, with a category like that, you sure could eliminate a lot of people, couldn't you? <laughs> False prophets claim to speak in the Spirit, but there's one acid test according to the Didache. It says, quote, By their character, a true and false prophet shall be known. Every prophet that teaches the truth, if he does not what he teaches, is a false prophet. End quote. So, if he wants a life of ease, staying around your house, if he wants money, or if he doesn't live up to his teaching, he's a false prophet. Next, they said, if he claims to speak in the spirit, but he sits down and orders a table and a meal to be set before him, he's a false prophet. Whosoever shall say in the spirit, give me money or any other things, don't hear him. But if he tell you to give in the matter of others who have need, then he's a true prophet, end quote. Uh, if a wanderer comes to a congregation and wants to settle there, and if he has a trade, let him work and eat. If he has no trade, consider in your wisdom how he may not live with you as a Christian in idleness. And if he will not do this, he's a trafficker in Christ. Beware of him. So a false prophet is always in it, for himself, to pad his own pocket, to fill, feed his own greed, his need for prestige and power, importance, money, the whole thing. Beware because they're out there. And listen, people, I'll say it again. They're not the apostates and the heretics. They're the ones that most people, these are the guys that most people think are Christians. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, so who specifically are you talking about, Bruce? <laughs> Who are these false shepherds we need to watch out for? I can easily figure out the heretics and the apostates. Who are the deceivers? Well, let me just advise you of a few of them to watch out for. Some of the more obvious ones are Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Paula White, Joyce Meyer, Bill Johnson, and all of the other Word of Faith uh, pre preachers. But there are two others whose names you may encounter that you may not immediately think of as deceivers because they're both part of a denomination that holds to biblical truth. But despite their credentials, they teach false doctrine. They are Stephen Furtick and Andy Stanley. And then there's Mark Driscoll, who founded the Mars Hill churches in the Seattle area. And after his tyrannical church leadership, sexual harassment, moral indiscretions, and plagiarism became known, he was run out of town, and the whole Mars Hill church group collapsed, and the people thought that he had gone to the garbage heap of failed pastors. However, in less than a year, he reappeared as the pastor of Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he remains today. 
And then there's one I know who I know that mentioning her name will sometimes get me into trouble with certain women, but I must include Beth Moore. She is perhaps the best known women's Bible teacher out there. And for many years, she was a part of the Southern Baptist Convention with their full support. However, as people began to examine her ministry, they discovered that she was preaching to men, not just women. And when confronted about it, she said it was biblically permissible for her to do such. And she also cooperates with and teaches with several well-known false teachers, such as Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and Brian Houston of the Hillsong Church. Uh, some of her, in some of her books, she claims that God talks directly to her and gives her special revelation about what to do in her ministry. Uh, in another situation, she began to catch heat from the LGBTQ community uh, after it was discovered that in one of her books, she had affirmed the biblical position about homosexuality, and her position was to go back and have the book re-edited and remove that passage, saying that she had, quote, exceeded scripture, end quote. Uh, recently, she's been endorsing many of those involved in the woke church and those promoting critical race theory. And finally, after the conservatives in the Southern Baptist Convention continued to confront her over all these issues, Rather than repent, her response was to leave the Southern Baptist Convention and join the Anglican Church in America, uh, which, while conservative, does allow her to continue her ministry in all of those problematic areas without any pushback. Uh, so for all of those issues and others, you will never hear the elders at Lakeside endorse her ministry or permit her materials to be used to teach women's groups in our church. Now, obviously, we don't endorse the ministry of any of the other people I mentioned either, and there are many more. So if someone recommends someone to you and you wonder about them, just do a bit of research uh, before you start listening to them. You're welcome to ask me or one of the other elders. If I haven't heard of them, I know how to do the research, and I'll be happy to check them out, and the other elders can do the same. So that's uh, just some of the ones. Well, before we get into the fourth word, uh, let me just pause and ask if there are any questions or comments at this point, since I went treading into the, the weeds there. Yes? I have a question and a comment. The first question is, what are your thoughts on Robbie Zacharias? Okay. And the comment is, uh, I heard something by Carl Truman. I don't know if you're familiar with I'm him. very familiar with Carl Truman. And he was, this is probably an old clip, and he talked about the importance of not celebrity pastors, meaning yes. that we all... I saw that. Yeah, and sticking close to what you're being taught right. in church, I think that goes a long way. So. Yeah. He, uh, he, Carl Truman recently was in it because he had made a statement about not becoming so enthralled with celebrity pastors that we somehow think that the guy who shepherds us every week is uh, second, second tier, you know. Second or third tier, you know, he's not nearly as important as that celebrity pastor out there. And uh, uh, he he made some statements about that. Well, he got some pushback from a guy who borders on being a deceiver. Uh, and uh, so that led to a whole uh, discussion, panel discussion with him as a part of it, with them sitting right next to him. And he just blatantly said it again. Here's what I think. And uh so the issue that they came to was that he is, uh, you know, they agreed with him that we should not see our pastor as some second or third tier guy compared to the celebrity. And uh, 
And he actually recommended that when you hold these big conferences, why don't you get somebody who you know is good, but he's you've never heard of before and put him up there on the platform. So interesting perspective. As to Ravi Zacharias, um, thought it was one of the most tragic things I ever heard. Um, from all external appearances, uh, taught the word well and everything else, but was living a reprobate life behind the scenes. And um, uh, let me just say, I'll wait till I'm in heaven to find out if Ravi is there or not. That's how. That's all I can say. Okay. All right. Yes. What about uh, how, how would you contrast, as far as risk is concerned, the denominations that have authority over a given church and pastor versus an independent congregation like Lakeside? What do you, What do you mean by that? Well, do these uh, denominations uh, uh, enforce? The theology on the on the pastors and evangelists. Oh, okay, okay, I see where you're going with it. In other yeah. words, is that a reliable uh, uh, means of determining whether somebody is for real or not? Some are better than others. Some denominations are better than others, uh, and sadly, none of them none of them want to come across like some domineering group who rigidly controls things. But perhaps they should. Uh, because they run into problems. Uh, back in the 80s, I think it was, maybe the 70s, that uh, they snatched the Southern Baptist Convention out of the, it had become a mixed multitude of, uh, that was largely headed the wrong direction. And the conservatives managed to grab hold of the denomination and get it back on track. But Satan doesn't quit, and he has continued to do that again, and that denomination has returned to being a mixed bag to where guys like Stephen Furtick and Andy Stanley are allowed to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention and to teach their heretical stuff and false doctrine on certain issues and, uh, and without any impunity, without, with impunity. Uh, nobody's saying or doing anything about it from a denominational level, saying, <clears throat> you're not part of us anymore, you've gone astray, you're out. Um, so, you know, and the, the um, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, they've been better about it than the SBC, but even they are struggling with some of these issues. They endorsed the Revoice conference a couple of years ago, and they've regretted it ever since because they got tangled up with that mess. So, uh, yeah, I wish more of them would do it. There's advantages to being an independent church. Isn't the purpose of a denomination specifically it, to police? Well, no, the purpose of the denomination is to say we're a group who all believe the same thing. And you need to, and then the second phase is, and if you're going to be a part of us, you need to agree to this and abide by these principles. Well, they're saying, oh, we all believe the same thing. But then even when people suddenly spring up who don't necessarily believe the same thing, they're not following through with, and so you don't need to be a part of us anymore. 
that's where they're failing. So, okay. Well, rather than move along, uh, let me put a note here. Um, any other comments or questions? Those were good. Bruce, yes. You're done there. So um, I heard John MacArthur say that you have to be careful because these pastors are not out there and promoting and selling help. Like just what you were saying. Right. If anybody is out there like a Beth Moore or a book that you're looking at, um, I Google John MacArthur's opinion on this person, and believe it or not, most of the time he has an opinion on someone <laughs> and everyone, and it does help because he doesn't beat around the bush. He'll just tell you, deceiver. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that a lot of times when I look at it. I don't know. It's still out there, and I don't know where. If he keep, I don't think he up, keeps it updated all the time because he's a busy man, but Phil Johnson used to have a website where he listed all the faults or everybody and it would have either a green light that was flashing or a yellow light and then a red light and if the red light was just red steady it was they're bad but if it was flashing red you're run the other way as hard as you can yeah so so it, he did all kinds of stuff like that but uh, I don't think he continued you, you could check to see if he still has that but uh, uh, no there's you got to research these people there's uh, years ago there was one of the ladies in our church was going to lead a Bible study using Beth Moore materials, and we went, time out, can't do that. And so she went back and researched, and she came back to us and said, thank you. I didn't realize that. So anything else? Okay, let's close with prayer and get out of here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Lord, these things are often difficult for us to dis determine who is a deceiver and a false teacher. But you've given us your word. Help us to be people of the word who look at it and then measure the teaching we're hearing against it. Lord, we pray now as we go into the worship service that we, our hearts would be filled with praise for you and that we would uh, hear your word and apply it in our lives. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.